morning to you all. I think this is the second or the third time that I was scheduled to be here. The other two times didn't work out for one reason or the other. This is working out real well. We're to be at Lighthouse this evening, and so it's just uh, a stop, stop on the way. Uh, let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 28. I'm going to read a few verses there. Acts chapter 28. I like the song that Randall led as well. And I noticed the man who wrote the song died apparently when he was 38. So you young people, you got the challenge before you to do some songwriting here, and it's uh, pretty significant what he said. I also noticed that John Newton was the author, uh, I mean, was the composer, and I didn't know that John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, was also a composer, but it turned out that he wasn't because I looked, and John Newton uh, wrote Amazing Grace about 1779, and this John Newton, I think, was born in 1802 or something like that, so I'm assuming it's a different, different John Newton. All right, so you should be turned to Acts 28 by this time. I want to read verses 11 to 15. And the context here is that Paul is on the way to Rome as a prisoner, and they are just leaving Malta. Remember, they were shipwrecked and spent uh, some months there at Malta. After three months, it says, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we circled around and reached Regum. And after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day we came to where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days, and so we went toward Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appi Forum and three inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. I suppose we all come through times in our lives when we run out of emotional energy. If you don't, you're a very exceptional person. Have you ever faced what seemed like um, just an endless difficulty? Or perhaps you've had your hopes dashed just so often. You, you hoped for something and just it just didn't work out. Or perhaps you struggled with a problem so intensely and struggled and struggled. Or you faced an uncertain future and just uh, in these circumstances, even perhaps without even thinking about it, you realize that your strength had slipped away, your joy was dim, and you found yourself plodding through life. Maybe that describes you today. And so it raises the question, is it unspiritual to become emotionally depleted? Um to experience some discouragement, to lose some motivation. Is that unspiritual? Well, let's consider the Apostle Paul. Paul was a dynamo of energy and persistence. We know that from reading about um, his missionary journeys in the book of Acts, and we also know that from some things that he wrote in his letters. And so let's go to the book of Second Corinthians, and uh, we'll read a few verses 
a couple of passages in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm going to begin uh, in verse 20 through 23, partway through, and read to verse 27. Talks about some experiences that he had, and he says, In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I've received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in a deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. You know, if we was Paul, we would have given up, wouldn't we? I mean, he persisted. He was an energetic man. And then we go to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. And we'll read first verses 8 to 10. And he says this, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. And then let's go to 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, he called it a light affliction, all those things we read about are light affliction which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so does Paul's example inspire you or discourage you? And think that because that somehow or another you just can't measure up to Paul. Paul may have been exceptional, but what I presented about Paul is not the whole story. The last leg of Paul's missionary journey to Rome as a prisoner uh, to face trial uh, before Caesar was by land, and it was about 150 miles that he had to walk from Puteoli to Rome, and word had gone ahead that Paul uh, was on the way perhaps uh, from his seven days that he had spent there at, at uh, Puteoli with the brethren, uh, back in Acts 28 again. And Paul was nearing what had been uh, the end of, he's nearing the end of what had been a long journey to Rome. It was long in anticipation because he had longed to go to Rome both to serve that church but also uh, so that the church at Rome could be a springboard to help him on his way to Spain, to which he wanted to go. However, uh, Paul had anticipated coming to Rome as a free man, not as someone who was a prisoner. And so it was a long journey to Rome, not only in the miles covered, and the time that it took, and the difficulties of travel, it was long from the events that had triggered uh 
this journey. Three years had gone by since he had been arrested in Jerusalem. He'd been transferred to Caesarea. He had been left there unjustly, uh, left in prison by Felix, uh, who was wanting a bribe from Paul, and uh, he didn't he didn't uh, play that game. And then he had been shipped off to Rome. And he had shipwreck on the way there, and once he got to Rome, which is future from this reading, he had, he had another two years yet to be in Rome before uh, he would see uh, Caesar and, and you know, come before trial. So how would you feel about unjustly losing five years of your life uh, being in, in prison? But actually, Paul didn't lose those years. Besides the people that he witnessed to personally, he possibly wrote the letters to the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon uh, during this time. And he might have written a whole lot of other letters as well, but these are the letters that are contained as part of, of a Holy Scripture. So now when Paul, the prisoner, was on the last leg of his journey, he was walking uh, toward Rome. He didn't know what to expect. He faced this trial before Nero, a man that was, uh, apparently he was unglued some of the times in his life, and uh, didn't know what to expect from this man, and he unexpectedly meets up with two groups of people, uh, men who had come out from, from uh, Rome to meet him. One group had come about 33 miles, and the other group had gone about 10 miles further and met him. Edred walked 43 miles to come out and meet Paul. Would you do that? Would you walk 43 miles to meet somebody that was coming to your city? And when Saul, when Paul saw them, it says there in the last part of verse, 10, verse 15, when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And that's what I want to talk about this morning is taking courage. But that tells us the fact that Paul said he thanked God and he took courage, it tells us that the strain of the past and the stress of the future did weigh on him. He was probably weary and worn, if not a bit worried, and at least wondering you know, what the future held. Apparently Paul had lost some of his emotional steam, and he was encouraged. Uh, by meeting these men. But most importantly this morning, I ask you this question. Do you take courage by seeing and being with the brethren? Do the brothers and sisters take courage by being with you? By seeing you and by being with you. There's a number of ways in which we can deal with the draining aspects of life. And this message is not about all these various ways that we can overcome a, a depletion of, of emotional steam and spiritual energy. Rather, uh, it has a narrow focus on how the church is, can be a recharging station for us, for one another. When we are experiencing life's duties and difficulties and dis discouragements, the church should be a place not just gathering together, but the church as a people. We should be a recharging place for each other, a place, uh, a people who help one another take courage. One of these days, if it hasn't happened already, 
first one of you and then another will arrive here at church with an electric car. Maybe there's one sitting out there right now, and I don't know about it. But be that as it may, have you seen these recharging stations for cars? Um, St. George, South Carolina, down next to the down next to Interstate 95, they have uh, charging stations there uh, in, in a parking lot where there's a bilo and maybe some other stores. Yeah, there are some other stores there. And it just looks kind of like pumps, you know, you pull up and plug in, plug in the car. But how would it be that, uh, you know, when that time comes and you have your electric car and you pull into one of these charging pumps, I don't know what the proper name is for these, these uh, things, and your car says it has 25 miles left on the battery and you plug that thing in and instead of charging up, it sucks it down. It depletes the charge. And you know, that can happen in the church, among church people as well. Instead of being a, a context in which we take courage from one another, we can become discouraged by one another. And so I want to talk about ways... Uh, not exactly, uh, I don't want to frame this message in ways that we can draw down one another's charge. We could mention ways, you could mention ways as well, in which uh, we experience that, that, that the brothers and the sisters draw us down instead of encourage us up, or that I draw people down instead of encourage them. Uh, I'll talk about some of those things, but I want to frame it in a more positive way and how we as brothers and sisters, the church, can help one another to take courage. And first, we take courage from church concerns. Let's go back again to the second uh, epistle of Corinthians. In chapter 1, Paul... Uh, is, is experiencing a time, he did experience a time that was very draining, very difficult for him. In verse 1, there of chapter 1 of Second Corinthians, he says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. He didn't know whether he was going to make it. Uh, and so then he goes on, and he he says, uh, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He put his confidence in God who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us, you also, helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. So Paul was over in Asia, up in Asia, and he was, it was a different Asia than when we think of as Asia now. It was more Turkey or in that area, and and he, he didn't know whether he was going to make it. And so he put his trust in God who was, uh, who, who raised Christ, raises people from the dead. But yet he also thanked uh, the church for what they were doing in their prayers. Now, they probably didn't know, of course, they didn't have the communications we have now. They probably didn't know the experience that Paul was going through. But here, the church was so concerned about Paul, uh, they were thinking about more than their business and their homes and their families and school and all this type of thing, that, that their perspective was large enough that even though they probably didn't know that Paul was going through this experience, they were concerned for Paul. 
and they were praying for him. We may not always know how to express our concern to a brother or sister. Uh, sometimes we just don't know what to say, or at least I don't. Uh, some of us just may not have the social skills that others do. Some are better at knowing what to say than what we do, or they excel at some point of, of expressing concern. But nevertheless, concern for one another seeps out of our attitude and shows in our actions, and we can all express concern for one another through prayer. Oftentimes our concern has to do with, with some physical, uh, material difficulty that people have, uh, some danger, some distress, but we, we should have concern for one another's spiritual well-being as well. You know, Cain asked this dismissive question, am I my brother's keeper? And what's the answer to that? Well, the answer is yes, at least to a certain degree. And apparently that's partly why God wants his children to be gathered as a family rather than scattered as individuals. That's partly why he wants us to, to be the body of Christ rather than just scattered out in the world uh, trying to live the Christian life on our own. So, Beyond asking each other, well, how was your week? Are you feeling better? Did you get your tractor fixed? How's your daughter who was in, who's in VS? Uh, those are legitimate questions. But beyond that, we have verses like 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. And let's turn there. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. And I want, to, I want us to take this as a representative verse of the practice of spiritual concern, spiritual church concern. And uh, I'll read it and then we'll make some more comments. But the verse says this, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Now who are the brethren? Well, I would say first it includes the sisters, and it's not talking about church leaders necessarily, because it says in verse 12, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly for their work's sake. And so there, he is talking to what we refer to sometimes as the laity, the people, um, those who are not in leadership, and then he's just, you know, right next, and now we exhort you, brethren, to do this. And so he's not saying that this work of, of warning the unruly, comforting the faint-hearted, upholding the weak, and being patient toward all is, is, is something you know, for Brother Roy and Brother Tim and, and uh, people who are in leadership. It is saying that that is, that is the work of everybody. It is the way we show concern for one another. And it's easier to perform some of these duties of spiritual concern than others. For instance, that first one there where it says to warn those who are unruly. Well, that's if you find that easy, you probably better not do it. I'll put it that way. Uh, and I've been warned. There's uh, a lay brother came to me one time and, and uh, you know, he... He brought up something which I had some misconduct, and 
and it didn't feel good and and you know I don't know that it felt good to him to do it but but anyway it was necessary uh, but we need to be careful with that one uh, but it is it is uh, a real blessing to the church if there is a need you've read something on Facebook that somebody is showing out but don't go tell the preacher don't go tell the deacon don't go tell the bishop you do you take care of yourself go talk to that person about about what they've what they've uh, put there and then some things are easier um, comforting the faint-hearted upholding the weak being patient toward all but this is the work of showing concern in the church and when we can do this graciously uh, when we when we are showing concern for one another for our physical needs, for our general well-being, for our spiritual situation, uh, then they are expressions of concern for one another, and it is cause for thanking God and taking courage. That it should be an encouragement to us when we are relating uh, to one another in that way. The second point I want to make about taking courage is that we take courage from church unity. Let's go to Psalm. 133. This is written by David. And man of war that David was, he must have known something about the pleasure of peace and unity when he wrote, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Or was it that David experienced so much disunity that, uh, so often that he treasured unity all the more? I don't know what it was, but he wrote, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren, brothers and sisters, to dwell together in unity. And this is one of the songs of ascent that are thought to have been sung when the Israelites uh, ascended up to Jerusalem several times a year for the religious feasts. And I have no idea if the pilgrimage to Jerusalem inspired David to write this little psalm, but people streaming to Jerusalem from the various tribes and from the four corners of Israel uh, to come and to worship and to fellowship may have caused him to reflect on the blessing of unity among God's people. And don't all right-minded and spirit-filled people resonate with the last phrase of this little psalm where it says, halfway through verse 3, For there, where is there? There, where there is unity. For where there is unity, the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Can't we take courage when those conditions exist? When we are experiencing unity in the brotherhood. You know, the New Testament helps us to understand that unity is is the work of unity among God's people is the outworking of the Spirit working in our lives. Um, it doesn't come because we have the same occupation or that we're all homemakers or that we uh, all look at uh, world events in the same through the same uh, understanding. Unity is the work of God. It is something that 
that when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives when we are born again, that uh, that is that is uh, that it breaks down barriers. It talks about that in in Ephesians chapter two. It breaks down barriers amongst us. It brings uh, love for one another. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, in Ephesians chapter four verse three, the unity of the Spirit is something to keep. Because it is something that is implanted there. It is brought about uh, upon conversion. But then going to verse 13, the unity of the Spirit is something to cultivate. And so it is both something that that happens when we're saved, but it is something that we grow in, that we, we develop. And the Corinthian church was having trouble along this line. Why was the tr- Corinthian church having trouble with disunity? Well, was it due to carnality? I don't know. There was trouble with carnality in the church. But let's go to chapter 1, verse 10 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. You know, I believe a church can be compared to a quilt. A quilt is made up of of different patches, and so we are as patches with some diversity. Uh, that's one of the things that makes a quilt beautiful is some diversity in in the quilt. I mean, you can have a plain quilt uh, that's just all white, but but some of that diversity in in the in the quilt uh, makes it beautiful. Now, if I could just follow that line of thought just a little further, sometimes the diversity can clash. It can be too diverse. There are limits to diversity in a church. The, the diversity needs to be within biblical bounds. And so, you know, within a brotherhood, you can't have some people who, who believe that, uh, well, you know, living in adultery is fine and, or living in a same-sex relationship is fine and, and that type of thing. That's, that's a diversity, that's an inclusion, that's the inclusiveness that is unbiblical. But within biblical bounds, there is diversity of personalities, diversity of interests, and that brings of strength and and beauty uh, to the church quilt, so to speak. But what was happening here in Corinth is that this quilt was coming apart at the seams, uh, or at least down the middle. You know, some were saying this way and some were saying the other way. And so it talks about being of the same mind, doesn't it? Yes. Being joined together of the same mind in the same judgment. What binds us together? Well, the Holy Spirit, but as believers in the Lord Jesus and as practitioners of the Christian faith and commitment to the Word of God, we have a same mind to live pleasing to God. A same mind, uh, you know, one of the things that brings trouble in the church is when we uh, are living for ourselves, that we are not committed to living for God uh, when there is carnality. And so... We have the mind to live pleasing to God, uh, knowing that loyalty and devotion to Christ also 
calls us to, as our baptismal vows said, renounce Satan, the world, and our own carnal will and sinful desires. And that, that binds us together because we're all working. It's like you have a work day at the church and you're trying to clean the church and you all have a common goal of getting the church clean. And, and uh, so that, you know, or you're, you're working at the school or something like that. And so when we have the common goal of living for Christ, and it's not just about what we can do to get by and still squeak into heaven, that brings us together. We have the same mind. Now, let's go to our to what you're learning as your memory passage, Philippians chapter 2, and their practical unity with, within the brotherhood is painted in fuller detail. Philippians chapter 2, and it begins there in verse 1 with sourcing our unity in our knowing of Christ. Therefore, if there be any consolation in Christ, and so it's when we are in Christ is what brings about uh, the unity within the church. And then in verses 2 to 4, it talks about embracing and cultivating our new spiritual reality that we are brought together in Christ. It says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Again, we can say, well, what is like-minded? Well, we're like-minded in that we believe the Word of God, uh, we are devoted to God, we are trying to serve God, and, and so it's when carnality slips in is where, where we start to fragment. Uh, or at least that's one of the one of the one of the ways in which we can fragment them. Maybe it's quite a bit more than just one of the ways. But uh, and so we embrace and we cultivate our new reality in Christ, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Look, each of you, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, verse 4, perhaps is a commentary on verse 3, but in verse 3 there, there's two things that causes um, disunity. You know, when we, when we can be like it says here in these verses, you know, when we are serving Christ and we are serving one another, uh, that that is an encouraging situation. We can take courage when when we're functioning as a church like that. But verse three tells two things why the unity sometimes is is spoiled, and it's because of selfish ambition and conceit. So let's just think about selfishness. Selfishness puts my interests, my preferences, my ambitions, my will above the good of my sister or brother, or above the common good. And conceit is arrogance. It's putting, it's putting my thinking and my opinions and my wisdom to be superior to that of the brotherhood. And so when I am self-centered and arrogant, that is not a very encouraging situation. I mean, do you really like to be around those kind of people? Do you find those kind of people to really be a, a, a cause for encouragement? 
And two ways that plays out in disruption of brotherhood unity is through an individualistic spirit and through a schismatic spirit. An individualistic spirit sometimes shows itself in disregard to brotherhood practice and standards in applying biblical principles to everyday life. Well, I just don't care for this way of, of applying scripture, and so I'm just going to do it my way. You know, I think church standards are a little bit like the warning signs you put along a beach and says, danger, uh, dangerous undertow. <clears throat> and so, <clears throat> you know, you put a warning sign here and 100 feet down the way, you put another warning sign and 100 feet down the beach, you put another warning sign. And if you want to, you can come up to the beach and the intent of the warning signs is, I mean, they're spaced out just about every 100 feet uh, or 200 feet, whatever, but the intent is to warn to not go there because it is dangerous to your well-being, to your very life. And that's a little bit like church standards. They don't address every issue, but issues that the church feels is, is important, they're just spaced along here occasionally. But, you know, we can go to the middle of that 50 feet. We can go 50 feet or 100 feet or whatever between the signs with them straight ahead. I didn't see any signs. And that's a little bit the approach we can take about, about our agreements as in living the Christian life that we can say, oh, well, the church doesn't specifically speak to this very issue. And so we, we become very legalistic. Instead of following the intent of, of where... Uh, the guidance is we, we can just look straight ahead and act like we didn't we didn't see anything that it, that it doesn't really speak to this very uh, specific issue and so uh, we can we can be discouraging to one another when we try to um, when we're not willing to conform to the nonconformist when we're not willing to to be uh, a good sport, uh, a team player in terms of of the consensus on living out the Christian life. But a schismatic spirit can seize on controversy and complaint, and and those things. I mean, we're humans; those things happen where human beings are, and it can leverage these things against the unity of the spirit among the brotherhood. I, I knew. I know one person who says that uh, said that, well, you know, he was talking about a situation uh, about a church, and he says, well, you know, there needs to be another church. It needs to be another church. Uh, this church needs competition, and it also another church, uh, starting another church, would keep the preachers on their toes. Well, now let me ask you something. Where in the Bible do you get that? That we need to be set up some competition. And we need to keep the preachers on their toes. Competition and keeping people on their toes is free market economy. It is not what the Bible emphasis is. The biblical emphasis is on unity. It is on against dissension. It's on submission to one another. It's not about uh, dissension and schism and that sort of thing. And so just on the surface, I know that there are times when a church can become unbiblical to the point that there is a need for for um, uh, separation. That's the reason Hepzibah Mennonite Church is a part of South Atlantic Mennonite Conference and not Virginia Mennonite Conference. 
because, because of that. But the unity of the Spirit fosters cooperation, not competition among God's people. And what is the remedy to selfishness and conceit? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. We need to be humble people uh, with one another. And, and this is encouraging. It brings encouragement when we, when we can uh, live together in unity. And, and we can be like Paul and we can thank God. You know, I'm encouraged. We're all striving for the gospel. We're all striving for to live a life that's pleasing to God. We can thank God and take courage. Third thing I want to talk about is that we take courage from church camaraderie. Now, the definition of camaraderie is mutual trust and friendship among people who spend a lot of time together. Well, I assume you spend a lot of time together. And so, do you have trust and friendship? And similar words are fellowship and companionship. We do spend a lot of time together as church people. And is our togetherness something we endure, or is it something that we enjoy? Is it a matter of trust and goodwill and friendliness that invites social interaction and that we value and enjoy our church family relationships? And the verse that I want to use to that shows this in the Bible is second is Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two verse twenty verse forty six. And it's, uh, they're given some characteristics of the early church. And there it says in verse 46, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. And I'll stop there. I think this breaking bread from house to house is not talking about communion. If you go just a little earlier in the passage, I think it is talking about communion. It talks about um, in verse 42 and the breaking of bread. But I think it's just talking about eating. They enjoyed, uh, enjoyed going to each other's houses to eat. So let's go back and, and uh, start reading again. What did I say? Verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, they were meeting together, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. What does simplicity of heart mean? I think it means that they, 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 were, they were not being deceptive with one another. They were just open and, you know, they didn't have an agenda to, to somehow or another stab somebody in the back or, or something like that. They were just open and they were enjoying, enjoying the camaraderie of being a part of the family of God, of being in the church. Uh, they were eating in each other's homes. They were gathering for worship and it was just an enjoyable uh encouraging situation and we should expect encouragement through our church relationships so let's work that the reality meets our expectations that when we see the brothers and sisters and they see us that we take courage I know that within a church some are more outgoing others are more reserved some enjoy a crowd some enjoy um, more solitude, prefer to be a mouse in the corner, but this really is not 
about that. It's about the warmth of relationships among friends, about uh, brothers and sisters enjoying each other in social interaction. As I grow older, I increasingly see the preeminence of relationships in the ordering of our priorities, of our values, the things that are most important to us. You know, houses and businesses and homemaking and hobbies and lands, they have their, they have their worth, they're important, but they offer limited nourishment to our souls, especially when some of these things become burdensome to us. The nourishment for our souls comes not only from what we receive from God and our personal devotions, it comes from one another, from enjoying one another, from the camaraderie of, of one another, from the social interaction, um, from the spiritual uh, concern for one another, from the unity that we experience. Camaraderie with our church family generally costs so many, so so little, and pays such high dividends in making us whole and healthy and in nourishing our bodies and our spirits and our souls until the Lord takes us home. And we can, we can thank God and take courage with his warm blanket of friendship and goodwill as we face the cold, harsh realities of life. There's an interesting connection in conclusion between Paul's anticipation of going to Rome and being with the church and his actual meeting uh, some of the church. You know, we read that passage there in, in uh, Acts 28 where it says that when he saw the brethren, he, was, he praised God and he took courage. Well, in Romans chapter 1 where he is writing to the Roman church earlier. So, what I'm about to read in Romans 1 is, was written before he actually uh, ended up going to Rome. And it says this, and so you know, remember, this was written ahead of time. This was written, I don't know how many years earlier, but he says this in verses 11 and 12, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. And when it actually happened in very different circumstances than what he anticipated, he was encouraged. He looked forward to being encouraged, and when he met people from the church, he was encouraged. So let's be a church, let's be a conference that we take courage when we see the brothers and the sisters, that it, uh, that it is a good experience, even if we need to be rebuked like I was on that time, that it turned out for my good. It was a good experience. Hopefully we don't have many of those types of experiences. It's more the experience of, of a pleasure and of, of camaraderie and joy.